Welcome to the Crucible 50 podcast series. I'm Ted George, son of the Crucible's first artistic director, Colin George, and co-author of his book about the battle to build the Crucible Theatre, Stirring Up Sheffield. And I'm Ashley Barnes, a performance lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University and the deputy head of the Department of Humanities. And together, Ashley and I will be producing this series, celebrating 50 years of the Crucible Theatre and the work of Sheffield theatres. The podcasts, which will run throughout the Crucible's 50th anniversary year, are a collaboration between myself, the Department of Humanities at Sheffield Hallam University, and the Crucible Theatre. And we will draw on a wide range of people who have been or are currently involved in this extraordinary theatre. The first two episodes in this series are part of Off the Shelf Festival of Words, which is also celebrating an anniversary this year. This is their 35th year. So what are we planning for the Crucible 50 podcast series? Well, we're going to split the series between us. I'm going to look at the history of the Crucible Theatre, exploring how Sheffield ended up with a thrust stage auditorium, why it was so controversial, and the Crucible's influence during a revolutionary period of theatre building in Britain. I'll also be talking with the theatre practitioners who are literally in the front line of the thrust stage, the actors and the directors, and exploring the challenges and surprises of working on the thrust stage. And I'm going to pull in the services of my academic colleagues who teach on the acting performance degree at Sheffield Hallam University to think about the theatre today, playwriting, young people, encouraging new voices, who are the people that work in the theatre now, but also how we are able to utilise the great resource which is the Sheffield Theatre's archive. We plan to end the series next year with a chat with the Crucible's artistic director, Rob Hasty, to get his thoughts on the series and hear about his plans for the future. All the podcasts will be available on the Sheffield Theatre's and Shoe Performance websites. First up in the series is your book, of course, Ted. It's called Stirring Up Sheffield, an insider's account of the battle to build the Crucible Theatre, and is going to be published on the 9th of November 2021. So why on that particular date? Well, you could say that is the date of the actual birth of the Crucible. That was the gala opening night, um, 9th of November 1971. But to tell the truth, the actual first night was the 6th of November. It was the cut price preview. And in fact, when my dad talked about it many years later, he said that was actually one of the most exciting moments because it's the first time they actually had an audience. He's like, it's the first time we knew that a laugh worked. And of course, the actors were energized by having everyone in there. So um, 9th of November is the official day, and that's where we're publishing. So what was the first thing that was put on the stage? Well, when they were about to open The Crucible, the opening season were two rather highbrow plays, um, Pier Gint and The Shoemaker's Holiday. And so Dad wanted to do something which, if you like, could warm up the Sheffield audience to what a thrust stage was like. And so they came up with the idea of this show called Fanfare, divided in three parts, which kind of showcases what you can do on a thrust stage. So part one, knock about children's theatre, part two, highbrow drama, and part three, old-fashioned sing-along musical. I think the very, very first thing that you've said in your book, the first people on stage were the kids. I like that. I think that's nice, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's one of the threads that goes through the book is children's theatre was so important. But dad absolutely wanted kids to be the first. So it was 34 kids who were part of Theatre Vanguard, the children's theatre company. Um, and they did an improvised show around the Aztecs and the Conquistadors fighting. But it was always about we want the kids on the stage first because this is the future of the Crucible. 
The second piece was a Chekhov play, um, Swan Song, which was performed by Ian McKellen and Edward Petherbridge. And Ian was just rising as a star at the time. In fact, he'd really made a name for himself as Hamlet. And he came and gave an amazing performance. But it's amazing to think he was pretending to be a 68-year-old very effectively. Now, aged older than 68, he's just finished playing Hamlet as well, and I think he's doing a film version. So what an incredible career of 50 years spanning it. But I discovered from Edward Petherbridge when I spoke to him that, in fact, the opening of The Crucible was also the birth of the actor's company. Because while they were rehearsing it, David William, actually, uh, the director, challenged them, said, how would you set up a proper company where all the roles are shared between the actors and it really is democratic? And they came up with the actors' company that was formed the following year. So uh, that opening night was actually the start of something big as well. And uh, Ian writes about this in the foreword to the book. And then it was time for the finale, which was musical. And it was starring my mum, Dorothy Vernon. And she sang several songs, um, including Bird in a Gilded Cage and Before the Parade Passes By, which was accompanied by the Sheffield Steel Band. So it was quite a night. Now, I've lived in Sheffield for about 30 years, and I've been to the Crucible on countless occasions. But for me, and I guess lots of people listening to this podcast, I don't remember a time when the Crucible wasn't there as a kind of loved and cherished focus point in the city centre. But I really enjoy reading the book, uh, as it showed that to design, to build and to run this iconic theatre was far from straightforward. Why don't we start with uh, at the point when the, your father, perhaps, came to Sheffield? Let's start there. Yes, absolutely. So my father came to Sheffield in 1962 to be the assistant director of uh, the Sheffield Playhouse. He already had 10 years experience as an actor. He was assistant director at the Nottingham Playhouse as well. And it was during the period he was at the Sheffield Playhouse. And he also rose, rose to be the artistic director in 1965. But he really oversaw a period of experimentation, which led to The Crucible. So he, you know, lots of new plays he championed. The first Pinter, the first Brecht, um, even the first Aeschylus was performed in Sheffield at the Playhouse. But he also actually championed local writers like Alan Cullen. Uh, they did nine shows together. And of course, most famously with the music of Roderick Horn, they did the stirrings in Sheffield on Saturday night, which of course the book's title is a homage to. But they also reached out a lot to a younger audience. They set up a children's theatre company, Theatre Vanguard, which was one of the earliest TIE teams um, in Britain. And then in August 1966, just one month after Stirrings closed, they suddenly heard there's going to be a new theatre and Dad was going to be the artistic director. Right. And, and Stirrings uh, in Sheffield on a Saturday night is something that was put on in the Crucible as well, wasn't it, later on? There was a revival in 1968. And then, yes, during the second season of The Crucible, they did it for a third time. And all three productions were extended as well. You could even say there were six productions of it. I noticed it from your book that there was a description of what it was, and they called it a tragical, comical, historical, industrial evening with skullduggery in the back streets, interwoven with a farcical subplot about a local gas company and laced with folk songs of the period. How about that? I mean, absolutely. And I think that captures what it was. And what's so funny is there were members of the Playhouse board who were against it. And uh, it's interesting that afterwards, David Brayshaw, who was the administrator, uh, when Dad got a bound copy of Stirrings uh, uh, in Sheffield, David's written in there, we were worried it would empty the theatre. It didn't. It helped build one. And the truth is, a lot of people said, sorry, a show about trades unions, this is going to go. But it was fantastic because, of course, it was a show about Sheffield and Sheffield people. Yeah. And those folk songs as well. I mean, Roderick Horn was amazing. Um, and my mother sung a lot of them as well. There's, I, we have recordings of them. Uh, you know, folk tunes are a great way of getting in people's heads. So I think it really did 
connect with a Sheffield audience. Maybe it'll maybe it'll return again one day to uh, the Crucible Theatre. To be perfectly honest with you, I think both my father and my mother and a lot of people involved in in stirrings, I think they'd had enough by uh, by by three years <laughs> of it. And also, remember, it's fifty years ago; it's dated in that sense. But what I think is really great is like some of the new shows in Sheffield. I, I really want to see Standing at the Sky's Edge. I didn't get a chance to see it because of COVID, but I understand in some ways it's almost like is it like the next stirrings? You could say it's that kind of inspiration for the show. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's loads of really great music in it. And it's kind of about Sheffield as a, as a kind of a city of sanctuary in some ways. Lots of different people coming into the city at different times. So it's a great, it's a great show. Exactly. But I think it's very much in the spirit of Stirrings. It's exactly what it should be. So I say let's have more of those and maybe not revive Stirrings. Yeah. Where was the Playhouse uh, in relation to Sheffield now? Have you managed to locate it in your head? Yeah, it was on Townhead Street. So that's about a five minute walk north of the Crucible. And it was in an old converted temperance hall. So a place where people meant meant not to drink, not necessarily to watch theatre. The thing is, it was eventually when uh, the Crucible opened, it was sold and then it was eventually demolished. And there's basically a huge building there, uh, which I think is student flats. But because Townhead Street goes down, if you walk down it, roughly where the entry bays for trucks are, I think that's where the Playhouse stood. They eventually in 1954 converted it into a proscenium theatre and for the time it wasn't bad at all but it was limited in terms of sight lines, in terms of what you could do and I know my dad talks a lot about the fact that they were constantly trying to get beyond the proscenium arch and actually reach out into the auditorium and couldn't and obviously backstage incredibly cramped you know front of house hardly any space for the bar or box office so they were way too small they needed a purpose-built theatre and that's what they got. Okay, so you've mentioned a proscenium arch theatre. So I think that probably we should need to pause for a moment to to describe the different types of theatre, because this is going to be important in telling this story. So tell us what a proscenium arch theatre would look like. To put it in the simplest terms, what we're used to when we go to a theatre is there is an arch or that sort of box that you look into and behind it is the stage. You see the actors. We're on the other side in an audience. And in the old theatres, we're actually wrapped round and almost embracing it with boxes around the side. But there's a division between the two of us. And then all the other stages are an attempt to get into the audience. So an apron stage is one that just sits over the front. A promontory actually pushes into the audience and you may have seen productions where you have the the stage is actually over where the orchestra is or even sometimes it goes right to the back of the audience. Mm. And then you ultimately have what is called the thrust stage and the thrust stage says forget the proscenium. There's no proscenium that's a back wall and you are acting in the middle of everyone with the audience on three sides. And the most pure form of this is what's called the Guthrie thrust stage, which is what um, the crucible is. Okay, and this is important in telling this story because there was a lot of discussion about the type of stage that should be in the new Sheffield theatre. So uh, what did they initially think that they were going to design uh, for the Sheffield theatre? Well, this actually has been one of the most difficult questions of the book is, in fact, when I looked at all the documents from the time and what my dad wrote, it was very hard to work it out. And so I think the answer is they weren't entirely sure. They definitely were thinking of an open stage theatre that could be converted to a proscenium, but not vice versa. But the one thing they discovered very early on in all their research is that up to that point, and you could still argue to this day, um, convertible theatres which try to do both fail because that balance that you need between the audience and the stage um, is one way in terms of sight lines and kind of interaction if you have a proscenium theatre but it's different for an open stage so if you try and design something which does both you fail on both levels essentially so I think the basic point is they definitely wanted something beyond a proscenium 
And then dad met Tyron Guthrie. And that basically changed the whole picture. Okay, so who was he? So Sir Tyron Guthrie, um, he was a great theatrical innovator, director, empresario. He had a very long and uh, lustrous career, but he became famous for developing a particular kind of thrust stage. And the idea is that you have a stage which is uh, roughly in, in the middle and on three sides you have an audience surrounding it. And the idea of this kind of acting, it's ideal for things like Greek tragedy, for Shakespeare as well. But he believed it could be due for any, any kind of acting. And the idea is it's about fast changes and it's about a very powerful uh, emotional uh, connection between the audience and the actor. And so Guthrie had worked on thrust stages in North America and he said, you should see some of them. And the thing is, Guthrie had influence and he knew how to make things happen. And so within a month of him saying, you really ought to see some stages, Dad was on a plane with David Brayshaw, who became the future administrator. And they went and saw a dozen theatres and completely were converted to the thrust stage by the end of those 10 days. And so at, at that time in the UK, there wasn't many examples of thrust stages, but in North America, there are loads so that they could have an opportunity to have a look at a number of different stages. Is that right? Absolutely. And that's what's so amazing about it, actually. I mean, this is uh, November 1967. But in fact, when you think of the thrust stage, which really, uh, you know, owes a lot to Shakespeare, it actually took North America to develop it to inspire then a British theatre. But yes, so Guthrie had worked very closely with Tanya Mazevich, his designer, and they designed a festival theatre in 1953 in Stratford, Ontario. And then that was rebuilt and redesigned several times. But also he did a thrust stage in Minneapolis. Um, and that is called nowadays the Guthrie Theatre. It has been rebuilt since but dad talks about that first night he walked into the Guthrie theater and he saw the stage this bare stage and he describes that moment when you walk in and see the stage and I'm sure you felt it yourself if in the crucible you go through the big doors let's say you're a bit late the show's starting in two minutes it's full and you walk in and you're like wow because the thing that always shocks you particularly if you're used to what we would say a normal proscenium theater is there's nothing on stage there's a massive crowd waiting and the feeling is like, oh, my God, something's going to happen. And mm. I'm going to be involved in this as well. You know, I'm not going to sit back. I'm actually going to be part of it. So that was the real moment. But when they saw various different productions, it convinced them this is the stage we want. And they came back. And with Guthrie's strong support, it was agreed we're going to design a thrust stage theatre. OK. And, th and I think that there was one other example, wasn't there, in the UK of a, of a thrust um, theatre at Chichester. And so was that their template? Well, this is what's so interesting, because I think after The Crucible was created, everyone assumed, oh, well, they just copied Chichester, because Chichester is a thrust stage auditorium, absolutely, and was built 10 years before, 1962. And it was also inspired by Guthrie as well. But the difference with Chichester is, first, they didn't have architects and engineers who were advised by the leading thrust stage people in the world, which is what happened at The Crucible, but also their budget was much smaller. I mean, if you adjust for inflation, Chichester's was probably about a tenth of what they had for the Crucible. And in fact, Chichester is probably the cheapest theatre per seat ever built. So that, frankly, is a feather in their cap. Now, the thing is about Chichester is the design of the original theatre in, in 1962 was not good. The, the roof is too far out. And this whole idea about the relationship between the audience to the stage, they're too far back. The rake of the seating wasn't steep enough, actually, because they weren't allowed to build a tall building. And they didn't have these vomitories underneath, which we'll talk about in a moment. But essentially, as a design, it fell very far short of what they wanted. So I can't see any evidence that Chichester was any influence other than in terms of we don't want to do this. 
But I should point out that they did an incredible refurbishment, uh, I think it's seven or eight years ago. They addressed many of the issues with Chichester. And I got to go there um, in June this year and stand on the stage. And I must say, it's a thrilling theatrical space. But when it comes to actual thrust stage, Sheffield is, is by far the best. Of course. <laughs> um, you mentioned the vomitories. Tell us about those. Why are they important and what are they? Well, maybe if I could just briefly explain in terms of how, how the design of the stage is, because this is how the vomitories fit in. If you imagine a thrust stage is different from a proscenium. So it all starts with what they call the red dot, the magic circle right at the front of the stage where you are. The actor is basically at the center of gravity of the entire building. Right. And the idea is there's an arc of something like 180 degrees around it. And most of the actors are not too far away. The idea is you've got to be able to get people on and off the stage fast. And so usually they would have stairs down the side of the stage. You have a bit of a moat and then you have a vomitory to get out or a tunnel. Um, and, and certainly time is there that she designed the crucible, didn't like use the, the word vomitory. Um, the reason they use it, actually, it comes from um, amphitheaters from uh, Roman times, because, you know, you had to get a lot of armed gladiators going to their death and wild animals into the arena you don't want them going down the aisles where someone's trying to eat a popcorn okay something like that so you needed to have that to be completely separate from the audience and you had to be able to get a lot of people in and out of them very fast and in fact in the book when tiny Mazevich describes you know my father asked her what a tunnel's about she's like it's getting people on and off stage incredibly fast and i'm sure if you've been in the crucible you've seen the production you can suddenly have a mass of people on stage and five seconds later they're gone so you can start another seen very fast rather than in some proscenium theatres there's a scene going and in the background there's clomp 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 as you try and get a hundred people off the stage you know so mm -hmm. it, it allows for fast scene changes but the funny thing about it of course um, is you know where do people go when they go out of the vomitories you've got to come up with a solution and Tanya came up with a solution is you put them under the stage right yeah and and you know what i mean like people refer to the voms as they're known in uh, the crucible a lot um the word, by the way, vomitory, I mean, the reason is because you wanted everyone to spew out as fast as possible. So that's where we say vomitoria. Oh, so it really is. It really is linked to the word vomit. Absolutely. <laughs> the idea is it's got to spew it out and then they've got to spew back in if there is such a word. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, um, recently when um, during lockdown, there was the first production that Sheffield Theatres did was one that they streamed. You know, they recorded and streamed and it was called The Band Plays On. And something that was a real treat was that one of the cast members as they were giving uh, their monologue they walked down underneath the stage through the bombs because you know it's it's a, it's an area that people who sit in the auditorium as you say they see the uh, the actors appear and, and disappear down those tunnels but i don't think that people really go down there and have a look so it was lovely to actually see them at that time on one level it's supposed to create a separate world for the actor to emerge from so that helps with this whole kind of connection between the audience because one thing that they discovered with a thrust age auditorium is if you as an actor get too close to the audience you break that connection and in fact it becomes uncomfortable or embarrassing for the audience member right so i don't know what it is it might be five yards or no it might be five feet ten feet there's some kind of distance you don't break so having a vomitory which is separate it enables that but of course what's lovely is you go down the vomitory and as soon as you're underneath you're into a working theater industrial there's plywood there's stuff piled up it's not pretty at all it is a working theater underneath yeah and so um you know in in designing a a, a new thrust stage for the the new theater in sheffield then your father had looked at a number of other 
theatres and I'd kind of decided I like that and I like that and like that. But he really needed someone who he felt was an expert in uh, to help him to design this space. So tell me a bit more about Tanya. Absolutely. So it was a time it was Evich. Um, I think the important thing to bear in mind here is, you know, some people often talk about the Crucible as Guthrie's theatre. And the thing is, he was absolutely the inspiration for it. He pioneered the, thr- the Guthrie thrust stage and incredibly strong supporter of the Crucible as well up until his death. But the important thing is it was Tanya Mazevich who designed the stage and so much of her design influenced the actual auditorium and the actual building. Now, she worked with him for years. You know, she designed his stage in Stratford, Ontario twice. She also did Minneapolis and she did hundreds of her productions in her life. So the point is, when it came to, it was basically early 1968 and she was brought in as a consultant. She knew what worked and what didn't work. She had been through this so many different times. She had precise measurements. And one of my favorite measurements of hers actually is one key measurement, which is the height of the vomitories, in other words, underneath. And that was based on her understanding of an actor wearing a Roman helmet with a plume and carrying a spear, you know? But but the thing is, what's so interesting about Tanya is that she got the balance of the auditorium exactly right. And it's something which is almost impossible to explain what is meant by that. It means the space around the stage with the actor, how the audience wraps around them and they're positioned, but also the height of the ceiling and everything about getting that space right. She was bang on. I think the other thing to say about Tanya, which is so interesting, is from the very beginning, the thrust stage was always intended as something which was adaptable. So you can see in the book, if you like, the factory setting of it. But she always said it should be fully demountable. So the thing is, of course, if you remove the whole stage, you lay down carpet and put a snooker table there, it's perfect for snooker because everyone's looking down on the snooker. That was never intended, but works perfectly. But also she was the one who said, we need backstage under the stage. And so that's why they ended up with vomitories which go down and then they turn back on themselves and you find yourself under the stage. But I mean, so many things about the design were to do with her. And of course, the shape actually of the crucible, which is an octagon. It's because she has a stage, which is a rectangle coming out and you have two vomitories joining at right angles at the corner. That's one side of an octagon and the shape of the auditorium and then the building complex itself all came from that. And, and the thing is, what was a lovely story told to me by the architect, Nick Thompson. He kept asking Tanya, what color paint do you want for the stage? And she said, leave it with me. And he kept on saying, look, this is an entire stage. And then one evening he went in there and he found her there on her knees and she was painting it herself because she wanted the stage <laughs> to look old and used. It wasn't a brand new stage. This is a stage of actors. And so, you know, that level of precision, the simple point is it's Tanya's stage. And of course, on top of that, you know, she was a member of the company from 68 up until 1973. And there's many people I know who said she was like sort of a grandmother. You know, people would come to her with their problems or with ideas. She mentored a lot of people. But I think the bottom line is she took her entire knowledge of thrust stages and gave exactly what was needed to the right kind of architects. And so I would argue this is her masterpiece at Sheffield. Well, so you and I are sold on the idea of the thrust stage, but that wasn't necessarily the case with lots of other people. So when the uh, plans were made public, it aroused all sorts of opposition from conservative quarters. Why was it so controversial? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, because I think there's a wonderful comment made by David Brayshaw and also maybe Dr. Gerard Young from the University of Sheffield, where he's saying, in the future, this will not be seen as a controversial thing. In fact, it will be seen a very normal form of artistic expression. But I think actually, when we look closely at it, there were some people 
who just thought that this was pretentious, that this was some kind of intellectual coterie spending a lot of public money on something that no one really understood. What is this all about? But mm. I think there were genuine concerns. People feared, and they were actually misplaced these fears, but for example, that we wouldn't be able to have pantomime, that we wouldn't be able to have ballet or music, understandable. But actually in the first season of The Crucible, they had Treasure Island, one of the most successful panthers they've ever had, right? They had Ballet mm. Rambert, they had the Phoenix Opera. So it was, unfounded on that front. But I think this conservative feeling that there is a bunch of uh, intellectuals wasting our money, that was a very big issue. And I think that's where most of it came from. And it seems that the um, the debate about the type of stage sold an awful lot of newspapers in, in Sheffield. So it seemed to rage on the front pages of the two Sheffield newspapers at the time, the, the Morning Telegraph and the Star. And they took different sides, it seems, also in uh, in some of that. But it wasn't just a, a matter of kind of old-fashioned local councillors, was it, as well, It was uh, that, that were kind of vocally against it. Interestingly, and I think probably surprisingly, there was also some really well-known British actors that were also against the design. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the most famous among them is what we would call the three knights, uh, as the press dubbed them. So Sir Bernard Miles, Sir Laurence Olivier and Sir John Clements. And the thing is that what was so damaging about their association is back in those days, there were far fewer celebrities and there were very few actors who were sirs, who were knights. So uh, Sir Laurence Olivier, who was pulled into this, you know, he had been the very first director at Chichester. And the thing is, he didn't like it. He was already at that stage, something like seven years into a very fraught design process for the National Theatre. And in fact, it would be five years after the Crucible opened, the Olivier opened uh, in the National. But he had a different view. So he tried to stay out of it. He clearly didn't like the form, but he definitely didn't want to be seen as trying to belittle another theatre. The trouble was Sir Bernard Miles. He was out and out. This is definitely a failure as a theatre. He insisted that acting was all about this frontal activity. And the trouble was because he had such credibility, because he had also opened um, the Mermaid Theatre in London, which arguably was an open stage as well, it really hurt the fundraising efforts. And they were established names. But I don't think they ever reckoned on the backlash that they were going to get from the new generation of writers and playwrights. And it unleashed a whole debate about what is the stage and what is acting. Yeah, so uh, I, I kind of love the intellectual debate um, in the book. I mean, you know, people wrote long, long letters, didn't they? And they and when they put something in the press, it wasn't just a few headlines. It was long, long articles that people wrote. It, uh, never mind Twitter and 170 characters. Do you know what I mean? This is... Uh, you know, a battle staged with quill pens and very detailed, constructed arguments. And I think that when you mentioned um, Sir Bernard Miles, and uh, and I, I, I picked out one of his quotes that he said early on. He said, I think this stage is a kind of freak. Uh, it is a retrograde thing and it will be out of date in seven years time. Well, I don't think he was right there. And then he also went on to say acting is a frontal activity because the actor's means of expression, his eyes and his mouth are in the front of his face. There we go. Absolutely. And also he actually sent a letter to my father typed out from a French actor, Coquillin, from the 19th century, where he basically just talks about everything about the, the soul and the, the expression of a human being is in the eyes and the face. And if you can't see that, 
That means there is no connection. But of course, anyone who has ever experienced anything dramatic, and by that I'm saying not in the theatre, I'm saying in life, it's often more dramatic if you are standing behind someone who says something and you see the faces of everyone who react in the different way they react, right? That is equally mm -hmm. dramatic. This idea that it always has to be frontal. And in fact, there's a very funny line in a letter that Tyron Guthrie wrote when he was responding to this saying, well, how is Sir Bernard suggesting that we stand? That basically one person stands next to the other facing outwards and speaks. And then he says, as a matter of confidential facts, Sir Bernard does this and it's not a hot idea. <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting because your father wrote something for the Morning Telegraph which seems to me to be extremely uncontroversial, but it really stirred up a hornet's nest. And people felt very, very passionate about this, didn't they? I mean, these letters are not just like, I don't really agree. I mean, they really were very, very passionate. So he, your father wrote that theatre possesses a quality that it, television and film lack, which is personal contact between the actors and the audience. And, and he wrote, it's three-dimensional in a way that others can never be. There was a local playwright called Mr. Dugard Peach. Yes, L. Dugard Peach. And yes, so he was actually, he had actually been on the Playhouse board when Dad joined back in 1962. He wrote many plays and children's books. So the thing is, he was very well known in Sheffield, but he was by then already an old man. So he absolutely represented the older generation. And my dad, he was in his early 40s. Most of the people who he was involved with on the project were in their 30s. So I think it's worth quoting what Mr. Dugard beat Peach said in the local uh, paper. They'd gone off to North America on a jolly, it sounds like. I'm not sure that he particularly liked that. But he was saying uh, that they hadn't spoken to playwrights and that this might be variously uh, attributed to a lack of interest, a lack of imagination, a lack of intelligence or sheer impertinence. So there we go. He was not a happy man, Mr. Uh, Dugard. Well, it's amazing. The point is made repeatedly in the book that, no, you cannot perform everything on a thrust stage, just as you can't perform everything in a proscenium. But the idea that there's like two things you can do, Shakespeare and, and Greek drama, and that's it. No, not at all. The last 50 years has shown that in spades, that probably you can do almost anything at the Crucible. Yeah, and obviously this was really, really important to your father, the, this whole debate, because he kept all of these cuttings. So yeah. you've got a great wealth of um, cuttings and letters and stuff like that that you can quote from, oh, yeah. from really, really famous people across yeah. the whole country. So many people wrote it. What was so good is it was actually Peter Cheeseman and Michael Elliott. And in fact, they got together to various different playwrights and said, OK, write to the press, to the Observer, and we're going to get these published because this is actually someone attacking open stage theatre as opposed to the Crucible Theatre itself. And so I've got some favourites in here as well. I mean, Alan Plater, uh, the playwright, at one point he says, uh, you know, I've seen the grandeur of my vision dimmed by many factors, notably my own limitations, but never by the backs of legs. Drama is spatial rather than linear activity. And if only the eyes can speak effectively to the beholder, why didn't Michelangelo fit David with a head on a pivot? <laughs> I liked something that Alfred Emmett, who was the director of the Questers Theatre, he, right. he, he said something about this, which I quite liked. He said the actor, once he has surrendered himself to the feeling of being surrounded or nearly surrounded by his audience, finds great imaginative stimulus from the freedom to play directly to his fellows instead of having to present a false continuous space to the audience. 
But I think also the thing I like is in the book, there's lots of different anecdotes about the experience of people seeing thrust stages, because there's a great quote from uh, um, a woman who had taken her kids to see Treasure Island, uh, you know, December 1971. And she was just explaining how the kids was, first of all, blown away by being so close to the actors. I remember that. It's slightly frightening. My God, they're right here. But she was saying that if you wanted to compare watching 100 cowboys and Indians fighting on the television and hearing the first time a musket being fired on the stage of the Crucible, no comparison. Yeah. So this sense of what you can feel there is just incredible. You can get so into it as a shared experience. It's very different. And I think the simplest way of describing it is that the Crucible is a lean forward theater, right? Whereas mm -hmm. you know you get some prosceniums, you kind of lean back and observe detached. Ideally, in, in a thrust stage, there is no detachment. It's engagement. And I mean, there is an irony. You know, if we moved on 20 years, more or less from the point when the Crucible was built, then um, the building across the square, the Lyceum, which had been long misused, perhaps, as a bingo hall, then suddenly was refurbished and became part of Sheffield Theatres. Um, and that is, of course, a proscenium arch, very, very traditional theatre. And so it kind of... It added to the mix of, of different stages at Sheffield Theatres, you know, the, the thrust, the, the, uh, the studio space, which was very flexible and could be operated in, in lots of different ways, but also then created a, a very ornate, beautiful proscenium arch stage. So I suppose, I, I say the irony in that is that we, we can see the real benefits of the thrust stage, but still that there was kind of a place for the old traditional proscenium arch stage as well. This is thanks in big part to Claire Venables, who was the artistic director during the 1980s, and she was determined to save the Lyceum. And the Lyceum was literally falling apart. I mean, it was almost demolished in 1976 as well. And the thing is, the Lyceum is a beautiful proscenium. It's by Sprague, and Sprague did, let's say, a dozen of the kind of theatres that you love on Shaftesbury Avenue or other really well-known ones in London. It's the only surviving example of it outside London. He, he studied under Matcham as well, and Matcham and Sprague basically designed arguably the best proscenium theatres ever built. They really understood not only the beautiful ornateness of it, but they really understood how to wrap all the audience around um, so everyone was connected. And then when we enter this period of, let's say, the early 1900s up to 1950s, they said, let's make it much more like a cinema. Let's remove all the boxes and let's just be looking straight at the production. And that killed everything about that connection between the audience. So mm -hmm. the fact it survived and that they restored it, you've got the best possible. You have arguably the best thrust stage in the world and you have a beautiful proscenium for all the things that work well on proscenium. So it's kind of interesting also, I mean, like thinking about new theatre design after the, the Crucible. So the Crucible was uh, built 50 years ago, and there have been other spaces that have built in the UK since then. How influential do you think it might have been, the Crucible, for theatres that came afterwards? Well, I think the interesting thing is, as far as I'm aware, I don't think anyone has tried to copy it or to build another specifically thrust stage theatre on this scale. I mean, there are a lot of universities out there who have probably experimented, uh, you know, with, with this kind of design. It was definitely influential in the sense of realising that you can have a different kind of uh, relationship between the audience and actors. So if I think of like uh, theatres that it inspired, I wouldn't say directly 
but certainly indirectly. One would be the Royal Exchange in Manchester, you know, Theatre in the Round. That was that actually opened about five years after the Crucible. And what I love about it is, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the entire actual theatre inside the building is suspended from the roof because it's too heavy to actually go on the ground. I mean, amazing kind of design. But um, mm. I have friends who've acted there and they say it's just truly extraordinary, you know. Yeah. Um, I think also the Swan Theatre, um, in Stratford-on-Avon, uh, the Royal Shakespeare. That is what they call a courtyard theatre, but definitely the Crucible would have had some influence, certainly in terms of how to do the design. And one theatre I haven't uh, visited, but I want to uh, go to is the Bridge Theatre um, uh, next to Tower Bridge in London. That's also a modern courtyard theatre, but in many ways is a thrust stage. Depends how you put it together. So mm. I think they are definitely some of the key influences. But as far as I'm aware, and I might be wrong here, but I don't think anyone actually tried to build a pure thrust stage since Sheffield. I was thinking about this in terms of theatres in the north of England as well. And um, and there have been a few theatres that have been built recently. So um, Home in Manchester used to be the Library Theatre in Manchester. They've built a new space. And that's kind of... Mm. They call it a flexible stage. I know that that was um, that was a rude word in the 1970s, but I think that it's kind of a courtyard. It has an audience that kind of wrap around the outside of the auditorium. And I think that on the whole, it, they, they play it end on. But sometimes I think that they can allow the stage to reach out into the auditorium. And that was built in 2015. The Everyman Theatre in Liverpool was redesigned to much fanfare in 2014, winning prizes for what they called their trademark wraparound auditorium. And Hull Truck opened a new theatre in 2009. And that was, that's pretty much a thrust theatre as well. That's called the Heron. And also going back a little bit further, in, in 1990, Leeds uh, opened a new playhouse, which we which was then called the West Yorkshire Playhouse. But they had two spaces. And one was the Quarry, which I would say is a thrust theatre. Um, and then also a kind of a more flexible courtyard space. So I think that it was a vanguard for all sorts of other building styles. You know, I think that, that breaking away from the proscenium arch traditional end on space, I think that the crucible played a, a major part in, in doing that. Yeah, well, I think the important thing is also it made this idea of the open stage much more acceptable, because I think that's one of the key things about the Crucible now is a lot of people, I'm sure, go there and really don't understand what's going on in terms of architecture. Obviously, they know it's not the same as a proscenium theatre, but what's technically happening there, they're not aware of. But as a space, they've got it great. So I think it was part of an entire generation, this kind of uh, the 60s and 70s when there was public funding and there was incredible vision, particularly here in Sheffield. Because I think the thing about the Sheffield Corporation is they never asked for a thrust stage theatre, but they wanted a modern theatre and they were prepared to put up the backing and they were very serious about getting the land and they wanted something which was part of the community. So they definitely didn't get what they expected, but I think they got something far more valuable. And the fact that it's kind of now seen as, oh yeah, we go to the Crucible, that's where we see things, it is normalised. So you could say the Crucible normalised the thrust stage. I was also struck by the fact that your father, when uh, he was preparing to open the Crucible, he kind of drew up a manifesto of what theatre should be about, which you mention in your book. So what parts of that ambition do you think are still true of the Crucible today? Right at the end of my research in June, I was finally able to visit the Crucible and see the archive because, of course, COVID restrictions. And at one point when I was going through the archive, Rob Hasty, the artistic director, came in. And just at that moment, I came across this very document, which is dad's um, uh, manifesto, if you like, which was written probably September, October 1971, just before it opened. And I gave him a copy, which he's looked at. 
And I think what is so interesting about it is, I mean, it's heartwarming because so many of the things they're laying out, we want to do this, it's been done. It's been done in the 50 years since the Crucible opened by all the people who followed. So I think the key thing is this idea of being central to the community, connecting with a broad cross-section of society. Dad didn't just want the middle class coming, it's everyone who comes in there. And like the very ground floor of the, uh, of the Crucible was always designed to have a kind of terrazza covering. It wasn't supposed to have carpet the ground floor. You're having flows of people coming in and out. And my dad would often say, I don't mind if someone just comes in for a drink or a meal and they never see a show because one day they'll buy a ticket. What he didn't realize, of course, is one day someone would come in and see a show and say, why don't we do snooker here? <laughs> and the kind of opposite happened. But it was always intended to be open and for everyone. And I see, I see that happening many times over now, what The Crucible does. Then I think there's this thing about a mix of traditional, new, particularly local playwrights, experimental work. This is what The Playhouse and Crucible are all about. That is continuing. And then I think there's this idea that the celebration and the exploration of the theatrical potential of the thrust stage. And he actually said, we want to develop a style of acting and technical ability. Well, we can see this and that's happened time again. I'm constantly hearing about ways that thrust stage is being used in the auditorium that I never realized before. And in fact, I mean, uh, I'm hoping I will get to see um, in London as well, the life of Pi when it comes here. But the truth is I really want to see it on the crucible stage and I don't know if it's going to go back there, but I've been told about this amazing effect that they did with video projection where he jumps into the water and people like, I honestly thought he jumped into the sea in front of me. That's yeah. exactly what the Crucible they should be about. And then I think just the final thing to say is everything about the studio being experimental, multi-purpose. It was designed from the start. We want this to be a laboratory for trying out all sorts of things. But I think the main thing to say is in the 50 years since it's opened, everyone who's worked in the Crucible since has taken it to a level far beyond anything they first imagined. So I think if my dad and people like David Brayshaw and Anthony Hampton were still alive, they'd be absolutely delighted with what it's yeah. become and frankly I don't think they believe it so um a lot of the, a lot of the book is written in the first person it's your dad's memoirs isn't it really and all the all the stuff that he collected so uh, how is it that it's uh, written by you and your father tell me about this a bit of the history of the book well the thing is it's very much a family affair so I mean my father lived this uh, he wrote the first draft uh, with a lot of support from um, his wife my stepmom Sue and then uh, I promised after he died I said I would uh, get it published so I got it into uh, ready to be published and then my sister Lucy published it I think basically you could say this book is a George production like a typical theatre family we all came in and we did our bit it actually goes back 45 years after my father left the uh, Crucible, he was given a grant by the Arts Council to write a book about it. And my apologies to the Arts Council, it's taken 50 years, but you will get your copy. But the thing is, he started it, and then like every actor director, he went off on lots of different things. So he never finished it, he was always tweaking with it. But the breakthrough came in 2010, when the then artistic director, Daniel Evans, who's now artistic director of Chichester, he invited my dad to take part in a talk about the theatre, just as they were reopening after the refurbishment in 2010. And that talk formed the basis for the book. And so my dad returned the following year. He was invited by Daniel to be in the production of Othello, uh, which beautifully actually opened on my dad's 82nd birthday. And it was while he was here that he started researching the archives and, and he produced a first draft. And then unfortunately he was unable uh, to finish the draft and I said I'd take it up. But the funny thing is you, you asked this question about who wrote the book. I took the original manuscript and pretty much everything is in there, um, but it needed a lot of restructuring. And funny enough, one of the key people missing from the original manuscript was dad. 
Um, there were a lot of things I found, for example, interviews he'd done, his original notebooks. I found like notes for speeches that he was giving at the beginning of um, seasons and things like that. So I was able to fill in the book with a lot more about what he really felt at the time. And then, of course, I had the great fortune um, that I, I got to meet people like Richard Pilbro and Theatre Projects, who did huge amounts of the engineering and the lighting. Nick Thompson, who designed The Crucible. And we spent, I don't know, 12, 13 hours talking through the design, arguing furiously because I had the documents and he did it. And after 50 years, we just about reconstructed the process. But the thing is, so, you know, it's him and me. But I don't know. There were times when I would write a phrase because I'm like, oh, this is the link. And I'm like, not only does that sound like dad, but where did that come from? Mm. So I think if I was ghostwriting, then dad's ghost was writing through me. Well, I, I love a little moment in the book. It, I mean, you are central to this whole story in some ways because um there's a there's a lovely little um story that your dad writes about your mother coming into the main auditorium of the crucible with your two sisters and you as a as a newly born baby and and the actor who was there on stage uh, mentioned something about a theater christening and your father wasn't entirely sure what that was so they went about they went through the process of giving you a theater christening Ted, which I think is wonderful, which I think it's, uh, he said, baby Edward was put in a basket and dragged over the stage by his family. This would guarantee him success on the stage. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for that because that was August 1972. So it's been a while, but you know, <laughs> it was lovely. It was Wilfred Bramble. Uh, so he, he was known for doing Steptoe and Son, for example, and he was doing a production. And because he was being interviewed on the stage and there were loads of press, I basically photobombed his press conference because he said, Oh, we've got a baby. We've got to give him a theatre christening. You clearly are very proud of your father. That really comes uh, singing out of these pages. Uh, and in fact, you say at one point that uh, seeing your father on the stage on his 82nd birthday or whatever, playing in Othello was one of the proudest moments of your life. So, so how are you going to feel when you're sitting on that stage with your book, launching your book? It's hard to describe what it's like holding the book. It, it's, it has been half a century uh, coming. And the thing is, it's, it's a beautiful sense of relief is what I feel, because it's something that I promised my father. It is, for me, the most important thing that he did theatrically in his life. And, and he had an amazing life. He did a lot of very interesting other stuff in the theatre in Australia, Hong Kong. He was also part of the, you know, an acting member of the RSC for two seasons. But this, for me, is one of his greatest achievements. And there were so many questions about it that I wanted answered. And I hope that the final result is the coherent story. So for me, it's this wonderful thing to have actually finished my father's story and actually told it properly. But I think more broadly, I'm just delighted that The Crucible now has um, its creation myth. I mean, there it is, it's clearly written. And, uh, you know, the groundwork's laid now for someone else to write a book about the 50 years that followed. It's funny, the book made me think of all sorts of things, but also I've been back to The Crucible to see some work recently. And I've kind of looked at the stage and the work that I've seen through the eyes slightly of your of your father through this book, which has been really, really nice. Well, what um, about it? Because I'm interested, like, about the actual auditorium itself. When you go in now, what do you see now that you didn't see before? Yeah, well, I, I'm conscious of where you sit in the auditorium. There are no cheap seats. That was a, that was an important, or no expensive and cheap seats, that, that everybody who goes there should get the, the full, rich experience. And I think that sometimes, actually, some of the designers have really um, honoured that 
and sometimes less so that that if you were quite a long way around the sides you didn't get such a good good view or or such a good experience but on the whole 90 percent of the time it doesn't matter where you sit which is which is fantastic and i love the idea of seeing behind people and um and in fact one thing that really really resonated with me recently i went to see the sheffield premiere of the film everybody's talking about jamie that of course was originated at sheffield theatres the first production was in the crucible and so as this was a film premiere there was a screen and the audience sat in the kind of central block of seats you know they couldn't go around the side because you wouldn't be able to see it and also i'd previously seen the show in the uh, in the west end on the proscenium arch stage of the of the west end theater that, that it was in but i tell you what when i went to the first production i went to the opening night and i sat around the side and it was an amazing experience the whole audience really really embraced the show and the atmosphere it created that in the auditorium was absolutely electric everybody felt it and and you know the film the film's great the west end production's great but neither will ever get anywhere near the feeling that we got from that first performance that for me that kind of sense of shared experience which your your father does write about is the magic of the crucible thrust stage but that actually takes it back to its roots as well because when you look at this idea of it, it really comes from greek drama as well uh, you think of somewhere like ephesus it's this sense of shared ritual and i think it's interesting because dad says it's a mixture between a football crowd and or like a congregational minister but in fact when i think about it i think it's even closer to tennis actually because if you've been to somewhere like center court is there's not a bad seat in the house in center court but you get a different view of the match and it's 3d Right. You, you know, when you watch tennis 3D, it's totally different from watching it on a screen. And I think what I love about tennis as well is you have moments of total silence when something really intense is going to happen. That doesn't happen in football. In football, people whistle when the opposition is going to take a penalty. Right. It's never <laughs> quiet. Right. But then there's moments of explosion of tension, uh, you know, of laughter and of excitement and applause. So for me, it's almost a bit like tennis as well. That kind of sense of a shared event going on where everyone's reaction to it as well is part of it. I think that the one sport where you get a lot of tense silences is snooker. <laughs> so anyway, I think that we, I, I think I speak for all of the people that love going to see shows at, in the Crucible main house. I kind of feel that we're greatly indebted to your father and to Tanya Moisevich, but your father was, he played a really seminal part in giving us the, the people of Sheffield, the people from the region of South Yorkshire, this incredible theatre. And it's been a real pleasure reading about it and talking to you about it uh, today as well. I'm just so happy that the story's been told now because it, it's been such a long time coming. And also, I'm really looking forward to people's reactions and seeing what they have to say because there's a lot in there. And, um, uh, you know, I think if there's anyone who likes the theatre or anyone who's interested in the actor-audience relationship and stuff like that, I think they'll really enjoy this book. So let me tell you that Stirring Up Sheffield will be published by Wordville on the 9th of November 2021, which is the 50th anniversary of the Crucible opening. If you'd like to get a numbered copy in advance, you can order one directly from Wordville. The link is in the podcast description. The book will have its official launch in the Crucible Auditorium at 3pm on Thursday, the 11th of November, when Ted will give a talk about the book and the controversy that we've been talking about today. And if you'd like to attend that event, which is free, then please send an email to info at wordville.net. So what's next in the series, Ted? Well, um, I'm going to be doing a podcast about acting on the thrust stage. Um, I'm looking to interview a diverse range of actors, young and old, 
to get their views and insights on challenges and the joys of acting on the Thrust stage. And then early next year, I'm hoping to have an interview with The Crucible's architect, Nick Thompson, and I'm hoping that will take place in the auditorium, a live event, and we can actually talk through the whole design, the engineering and the construction of the theatre complex. And actually, the next instalment of the Crucible 50 podcast is going to be released quite soon. Uh, it's the one that I'm recording with the Sheffield born and bred playwright, Chris Bush. And that's going to be released on the 25th of October at 6pm. I'm going to be asking Chris about how do you write about the city? But how also do you write for that particular stage? And then a little bit later in the year, a colleague of mine at Sheffield Hallam University is going to delve into the Crucible archive. That's great. So thank you very much, Ashley. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the first episode in the podcast series. Please check out others which will be coming up over the next year. So see you next time.